Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, part of the New Books Network, and I'm Rob Wolf, your host. Today I'm speaking with Shelby Westcott, who describes herself in her website tagline as author, mother, teacher. She is the author of the three-part Virulent series. The first book is called Virulent the Release, book two is The System, and book three, The Variables. And the series focuses on teen protagonists who survive a bioterrorism attack that kills nearly everybody on Earth. That's kind of a grim introduction, but I'm sure Ms. Westcott is used to that. I'm really glad you can join me from your home in Portland, Oregon, to talk about your series. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've only read book one and the beginning of book two, but I know we're going to have a great discussion because I have tons of questions already. And not just about the books, but about your decision to publish independently and the popularity of indie publishing in general these days. First, I'd like to talk about what drew you to this version of Apocalypse. And what comes to mind for me is how books are categorized, young adult, science fiction, and within that there are subcategories like time travel or dystopia or alternate history. And my last interview was with Emmy Itaranta, whose book I saw categorized as cli-fi, referring to science fiction about climate change. And so as I was reading your book, I thought yours should fall into a category called die-fi, books in which nearly everyone but the main protagonists die. I like that I like that category a lot. Well, I I googled it and no one's using it yet. That's awesome. Die-fi. Um I think that's a really good selling point and you know exactly what you're getting into before you even start the book. Just prepare for it, everyone is going to die. And so why did you choose that? Why were you drawn to that uh, the idea of a virus that kills virtually everyone but a handful of people? And and not only you, but why do you think people in general are these days are drawn to this this subject that's a really good question for me i i initially started writing virulent for um for some some students one student i'm a teacher in portland and in particular had wanted me to sort of write this story for him and the the key is that he wanted it apocalyptic so not post apocalyptic or dystopian but wanted to sort of watch the apocalypse unfold as it was happening. And for me, as I was sort of thinking about where I wanted to go with the story, I I ran into a lot of this, well, this has been done before, and this has been done before. And so I hadn't read a lot on the bioterrorism aspect of it. We have a lot of accidental viruses in in apocalyptic fiction, but this purposeful idea that somebody would try to wipe out humanity was where I sort of wanted to come from that I thought was unique. I think readers are drawn to apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, because there's a lot of us who feel like these things that are happening are scary in our real world. And when we can sort of explore those horrors in fiction, it feels a lot safer. 
It's interesting that when I was growing up, and I'm not sure how old you are, I'm, I'm 48. I'm 34. Well, it was all about nuclear holocaust. You know, the, the end of the world was going to come in a nuclear explosion. Yeah, I mean, I definitely grew up Cold War, you know, 80s with this idea that, that the Soviets were the bad guys. And now it's kind of transformed into terrorism. And also there are biologic threats. We have heard of bioterrorism and also just kind of organic, natural threats like bird flu, those kinds of things. Yeah, there's lots of scariness all around us. And I think certainly as a parent, too, you know, you start tallying up all the different ways <laughs> that that we as a species are in danger. It, it gets pretty overwhelming. So tell me about the student. He was interested. Yeah, I um, I taught an at-risk reading class. So a class for students at our school who were not reading at grade level. And part of my job in that class is just to get students excited about literature. And so I taught a dystopian unit where I brought in all of this literature. Uh, you know, we read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, and then we read Hunger Games, and, um, and Z is for Zachariah, and all of this literature that I got really excited about. And I just had this one student who was not having it, totally disengaged. And I had to call him after class one day and say, you know, you actually have to give some of these books a shot. You might like them. And he's like, I bet you could even write a better book <laughs> than the one we were currently reading. And I said, uh, I'll, I'll take that challenge. Sure. Okay. So I handed him a piece of paper, said, write down 10 things you want in an apocalyptic book, and I'll try to write it for you. And that happened when he was a freshman, and Virulent was published his senior year. So that was a pretty exciting graduation present for him. Wow. Yeah, I saw I saw reference to a student's name in your acknowledgments and, and mentioning the fact that he inspired you, or I guess actually you specifically say that he asked you to do this, but I didn't understand the full context. Yeah, it's it's a really fun story just because I didn't know when I started what was going to happen. I was just trying to keep this one kid engaged. And from trying to keep this one student engaged, it sort of snowballed into all of a sudden lots of students were wanting to read it. And that was really exhilarating. So I, I've told people that book one of the Virulent Trilogy is, is, was very much written for a small group of students um, with their needs and wants and, and character ideas in mind. And books two and books three are where I sort of get to step out and take the story where I wanted it to go. And were you able to incorporate the 10 points that he had originally written down? Yes. The only thing that I purposefully did not want is zombies. He was very like, I want apocalyptic and I want zombies. And I didn't, I did not personally feel at the time that I could offer anything new to the, the zombie subgenre. And so I created a character, Grant, who has a fascination with zombies as sort of my out on checking that one off the list. Exactly. He keeps predicting that the corpses will turn into zombies. Yeah. But that, that at least doesn't happen as far as I can tell from, from book one. No zombies, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen in your students, you know, with terrorism so much in the news and school shooters, I wonder if you've seen in your students you know, negative effects 
from all this negative news. And as you say, you know, writing this book perhaps is a way to help kids deal with those fears. Has that played out for you? A little bit. I I think students uh, want to talk about these fears and not having an outlet. And fiction has always been, I think, in my mind, an outlet for talking about the things that scare us and and the, the probabilities of life. Teens are changeable. So one day they're acting like, you know, nothing scares me, nothing's ever going to happen. And then the next day they're puddles and they need to be reassured that, that life goes on. I think the teenage years are, are really formative in sort of discovering how you handle trauma and conflict and worries. And I, I appreciate, as a, as a teacher, being able to have access to kids who may need to be reassured or just may need an, a way to talk about the things that are hard. I'm writing a horror book right now and sort of in exploring the horror genre, I've realized that <laughs> that there are a lot of things that scare us and the best thing we can do is just have a group around us who's able to say like, yes, the world is scary, but yes, the world is good too. I wonder why, beyond it being sort of a psychological salve to us, why we are interested in this this kind of stuff. And I was wondering if it has to do with, you know, we identify with the protagonist, and the protagonist almost always survives these mm-hmm. things. And so we can get a, get a piece of their invulnerability. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, you, you want to be the survivor, and <laughs> and these stories follow the survivors. And so when you can identify with... Uh, a group that's banding together and camaraderie. It makes you feel like maybe in the aftermath of something um, happening in our world that that this will be my story, that I'll get to be that, you know, that group. Yeah, absolutely. And did you have to do a lot of research for this book or were your students your research? Like it's, you know, the book one is set in a school. So I imagined as you were describing things that this must be what Shelby Westcott school looks like. It is a mirror of my school. It looks exactly like it. I actually even have a skylight in my classroom, which, as you know, a skylight plays an important part in one particular scene. And I would have people come into my classroom who I've never taught before and say, like, oh, I just needed to see if the skylight was here. Oh, that's so funny. In terms of research about bioterrorism, I actually did research a lot about that which is dangerous to Google, but I just went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> Have people come knocking at your door, uh, wondering, inquiring why? Of course, if they had, you probably couldn't say because there's all kinds of rules <laughs> under the Patriot Act. I've got to be on a list somewhere. I'm, I'm positive. I think, uh, I think good writers probably all are. Uh, Touche. Very good. <laughs> When I think of all these students who both inspired you and helped inform your writing, I think, wow, what a great resource for a writer of young adult literature. Were you able to bounce ideas off them? Do you show them work in progress? I teach creative writing. That, um, that's another class that I, uh, that I teach. And yes, that creative writing class often gets to workshop my books with me. And I, I do it as a model for them of what editing and revising and what writing groups can look like. I often have a group of teenagers that I handpick as my first round of beta readers. I think that I am exceptionally blessed to be able to have access 
to so many students who are not only willing, but also pretty in tune with what they want to read and what they want characters to look like. And tell me about the principal in your story, because I have to say he's one of the most sadistic, crazy people I've encountered in books in a (laughs) long time. And I wonder, since you are a teacher, you obviously must have a principal, a real life one, and, and not necessarily using him as the only example, but when you're drawing and creating scenes drawn from real life experience, is there a fine line you have to walk about telling everyone, oh, but this is all fictional, it has nothing to do with you, or <laughs> how do you handle that? I did have to say a lot when people finished the book that Principal Spencer is a fictional character because there there was a lot of questioning. And he is totally and completely. And my principal is familiar with the book and and I haven't been called down to his office yet for any uh, formal reprimand. Um, so I think I'm okay. That's good. I hope you have a union, though, there, just in case. <laughs> I, do, I, I do, yeah. Uh, that would probably come in handy in that case. <laughs> I, I did want to sort of play off of this teacher idea of the teachers against the administration. And, and I've, I've worked with several administrations and no, not every principal is wonderful to work for. So there definitely is recounting some, you know, moments of my own life and just little situations and hearing horror stories from all my other teacher friends too, far and wide across this great country who have some pretty crazy stories about the people they've worked for. And I'm dying to know, is your school actually retrofitted the way you describe it to withstand a terrorist attack so that everything has bulletproof glass and and these um, doors, these metal doors that come down to kind of isolate wings of the school? We do have some of that. It's uh, The fictional school is a little bit more high-tech than what we have, but we do have gates that come down um, that can section off parts of the school from other parts in the case of a school shooter or other emergency scenarios. If you're needing to sort of herd kids from one end to another, the gates can help with flow of traffic. We are a closed campus, so all of our doors are locked, and there's only one way in and one way out of the school. We have a high-tech security system with cameras as well at our school. So those components of the story did come from real life. Wow, you know, things that sound or would have sounded like science fiction 10 years ago turn out to be true. Yes, I I think there's fear in these designs. I mean, we even look at the Sandy Hook building and the technology that went into keeping that school safe, which didn't work. And and so we keep on trying to do more and more things that feel tangible to try to stop tragedy. You're fearful when you work in a school. It's hard to say that you're not. You are. It, It definitely crosses your mind every day when you go to work that this is a place that could be dangerous. Wow, so sad. It is sad, but I also... I mean, I work with teenagers, and I I see so much hope and love and awesomeness in the teenagers I work with that I actually am very hopeful about humanity. My books may not show that, actually. but <laughs> Right. After you killed everyone off, then you can feel hopeful. I did. So sadistic. Usually when you have a book like this where there is an illness that's killing everyone, 
the protagonists are the doctors or scientists or investigators who are trying to find the cure. But in your case, you've chosen to make kids who are more or less the victims, at least in the beginning, the stars of the show. That was actually really important to me to have the teenagers be the heroes and be the voice of reason. When you get later into the virulent series and you're looking at the character who leads the bioterrorism war and then subsequently his plan, his overall plan for the world post this act of terrorism, you begin to realize that most of the adults in this world are sheep, you know. They, they're they operating out of fear and out of misplaced loyalty, and it's it's the kids who are saying, this isn't right, we don't want to live like this. And I, I like that idea that as we get older, uh, maybe sometimes we lose our sense of <laughs> of morality when safety is concerned. There's also, though, the theme of a parent concerned first and foremost about their children and to hell with everyone else, if need be. Absolutely, yes. And I I wanted that to be a sort of moral dilemma. If you had to choose between your kids and the entire world, what do you choose? And it's really easy to say, like, well, I, I would never do something to incite the demise of civilization. But if it's your own kids, I don't know if that's... (laughs) If that's something we can answer flippantly. Exactly. I wonder how much strife is really caused in the world, in the real world, with that motivation where you're protecting one thing you care about, but as a result, harming something else. There is a, a, a fascinating story about an experimental cancer drug. I don't know if you remember this in the news where there was a a little boy who was dying of cancer and there was a drug that could save him that the pharmaceutical companies didn't want to let him use because they were in trials and they were concerned about other people asking for the drug before it was ready and the pharmaceutical the guy the head of the pharmaceutical companies came out and said in this case I'm going to have to let this one child die so we can save more children in the future. I remember reading that story and just thinking about the the moral dilemma of that and how much it just wrecked me. And I think often in fiction, and that was a real child, those are real parents and real people in the real world dealing with that. And what you can do in fiction is you can take a scenario or take someone's heartache and you can play that out and you can explore it and you can often write a different ending let's hear it for fiction (laughs) absolutely well let's talk about that tagline on your website that i mentioned where you describe yourself as an author mother teacher you you were teaching first now you're also writing you know are you trying to make writing more of a priority in your life that's a good question i um i wish writing could have more of a priority in my life I I definitely put my kids first and I do think that I write differently now that I'm a parent than I did before I had kids. My books are different in a good way. I think my children have brought about a really great sense of self and uh, and perhaps I'm 
well, I'm not as selfish, actually, which is a great thing that parenthood does. And I, I would love to make writing a full-time career someday. If that's, if that's what ends up happening, that'd be fantastic. Well, let's talk about indie publishing, or I guess it used to be called self-publishing, although it was really different a few years ago. Yes. Back then, I don't know, you had to print the books yourself, and now with print on demand, it's, it's really about putting together the, the electronic file and getting it to a vendor like say, Amazon. Mm -hmm. I've done the same thing as an indie author myself. So, you know, I know about my experience. In fact, you know, I could tell a little story that you, in fact, helped encourage me to self-publish because I noticed one day that my son had bought your book. We all have Kindles, and when he buys something, it downloads to my Kindle, too. And I was like, what's this book? I was looking through it, and I thought, oh, this was independently published. That's interesting. He, He went out and found on his own, an independently published book, whereas I thought that might have been hard for a reader who was interested in a particular subject to go down that route and end up picking an independently published book. You know, I thought the the traditional publishers so dominated the marketplace that you'd never be able to find an independently published book. And I I asked him, why'd you buy it? And he said, well, it just looked interesting. You know, I I go down the list on Amazon and I I pick the books that are interesting to me. And then on top of that, I liked your cover so much that I ended up hiring the same graphic designer, Roy Miggabone, to to do my cover as well. So, So you've had an impact on me long before we had any contact to arrange this interview. That's awesome. That's the that's the best news I've heard all day, I think. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Well, let me ask you then, why did you decide to publish independently? How how did you come to that decision? I I had written a what could probably be classified as a literary novel during my college years and and beyond when I was taking um, writing classes at a local college and and sort of had thought as young 20-somethings or want to do, like, this is amazing, and I'm going to publish this, and this will win national book awards and things like that, which is uh, delusions of grandeur, certainly. I've had those myself. So. <laughs> yeah, they're they're good when you're young. I mean, I, I encourage them. It's nice to outgrow them, actually, as well. So <laughs> I had definitely tried to seek an agent and, and publishing contract for that book and nothing ever came of it and so I I moved on and thought what I needed to do was to just rewrite that book over and over again until it was publishable. So I probably worked on that single book for 10 years of my life just revisiting every scene, every ending, sometimes starting over completely because I thought that this was the book I was supposed to publish. Then I wrote a short story that I really loved and spent a really long time trying to get that short story published. And when I wrote Virulent, it was no question for me that I wanted to go through that process. I knew that I had a book that teenagers would read. I was excited about the story I have a friend who works in Amazon Publishing who was able to coach me a little bit on what the world was looking like in you know in the Amazon world with self-publishing and the indie publishing and it got me really excited about knowing that that was a way that I could get this story out into the world quickly and so I I just knew that's how I wanted to do it. Yeah, it makes sense. I can also relate to having run a certain kind of gauntlet with traditional publishing and getting excited by the possibility of not having to go through that again. It's 
a really wonderful time in publishing where slowly, and we're getting there, we have a long way to go, but where readers can be the gatekeepers instead of executives at publishing companies or interns at publishing companies is probably more likely. But yeah, I mean, when readers can pick a book that they like and rate it on Goodreads and Amazon and all these other sites and spread to their friends that this is what they're reading via social networking. Those are far more powerful to me as a way to gain readership and keep books out there. So I'm excited about what it says for reading. I'm a reader first. I mean, I, I read voraciously. I, I love to get lost in a book. I stayed up actually until 3 a.m. last night reading and finishing a book, which was ill-advised. So I'm excited about what this does for readers. Speaking of readers, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges for a reader who is a gatekeeper is figuring out how to navigate the world of indie authors. You know, how would you suggest a reader find who is a good storyteller, given that indie publishing has become so popular and there are literally tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of new titles that are being produced every year that weren't before. There are a lot of Facebook groups and Goodreads groups for people who like to read specific genres. And joining one of those and asking readers for suggestions is the best way to get reader-vetted literature um, instead of trying to just wade through everything that's available. Asking people you know, what they liked their top books for the year. Those types of things are great ways to, to get an idea of what's out there. And there are a lot of readers who mostly read indie authors now or made a switch to reading mostly indie authors, which is really exciting. Indie readers and indie writers support each other in such incredible ways that you just don't really see anywhere else. I have not felt like there is competition but camaraderie and it's a really cool club to be in <laughs> nice to hear that now tell me what you're working on now you mentioned you you've you switched to the horror genre what was the decision process there did it have something to do with your kids like you said i like to read in the horror genre and i get very easily scared <laughs> so i'm kind of a baby and I had read a book, a scary book, and then my husband and I had gone to see The Conjuring last summer, and I had to sleep with the light on for a week. And so I decided to write a horror book as a way to sort of exercise my own fear of ghosts, and it just managed on really kind of scaring myself more. Yeah, I get I get scared too easily, so my answer to that is to completely avoid the genre, basically. <laughs> But I see you're you're more fearless than I am, so good for you. It started that way. We'll see what happens. So no, it was um it it was a, a story that just came to me that I knew I needed to tell. But yeah, there were some there were a couple sleepless nights. Well listen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. I've been speaking with Shelby Westcott, the author of the three part virulent series. Go out there and buy it or buy borrow it or steal it from your kid's Kindle to read it. And one way to buy it is to click on the link to it on the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy website at www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. If you buy it through that link, a percentage of the purchase price will go to the New Books Network, which is a nonprofit enterprise run by volunteers. I'm your host, Rob Wolf. 
visit me at www.robwolf.net or on the Facebook page for new books in science fiction and fantasy. In two weeks, I'm planning to interview James L. Cambius, author of A Darkling Sea. Tor Books calls it an adrenaline-pumping sci-fi thriller that follows the clash of three alien species at the bottom of a lightless ocean. What could be better than that? Thanks so much for listening.